Well, huge thanks to Tim for sharing his diary with us and also for leading us in worship today. Uh, That is what it looks like to be thrown under the bus, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. My name is Caleb. I serve here, surprisingly, as one of the pastors. And today, we are finishing up our series called Online as we talk about living out the gospel in the digital age. And if you've been with us for these last few weeks, I... Uh, Thank you for making an intentional decision to be a part of this uh, study in the scriptures. I hope that it's been a blessing to you. If this is your first time, you're just hopping on board. I'm glad you're here. You can check out our website uh, for some of the past sermons as we've talked about uh, some of the unique things that the digital age presents us with. And today, we're going to be talking about truth or the truth or fake truth or whatever you want to call it. We're going to be talking about truth. A couple of things before we dive in. Last week, we talked about being offended. And uh, if you have heard rumors about the letter that went out to all of those who were in attendance last week, maybe you're on vacation uh, and didn't get a chance to grab that, you can pick up those letters. Those are available on the tables in the back next to where the Bibles are. I'd encourage you. Uh, You'll see on the front, it says, in case of offense, open envelope. In the same way, if you're in an apartment complex or an office building, They'll have these little square things with glass that say in red letters, in case of fire, break the glass. Well, this is in case you get offended. And based on what we're going to be doing in today's sermon, that moment is shortly approaching for you. <laughs> Secondly, uh, next, next two weeks, I want to encourage you to make an intentional decision to be here for the next two weeks. Next Sunday, we're going to be talking about God's heart for the world. As Robin mentioned a moment ago, we're going to be hearing from one of our cross-cultural missionaries, Tom Blanchard, uh, who's recently arrived back in the States. And also uh, leading us in worship will be a, a, a guest uh, musicians, and we'll be doing uh, some of the songs in English and Spanish. I heard there might even be a little French in there, and so I'd encourage you to be here next week. And also to join us uh, for uh, lunch next week, 1230. I want to encourage you to make plans to join us for lunch next Sunday, 1230, in the Student Center. Many of our missionaries have come in to spend some time with us, and they're going to be uh, having a chance to share a little bit about how they're seeing God at work uh, in the mission field that they're serving in. Also a great opportunity for you to get to know them, ask them any questions, and just get to know about uh, how it is that we as a church family are part of God's work around the world. So that's at 12.30 out in the Student Center uh, next Sunday for lunch. Just show up. We'd love to have you join us for that. If you have questions about our cross-cultural missionaries or the lunch or the service next week, out in the lobby off to the left-hand side in the Direct and Connect space there, some of our team members uh, are there and they're able to answer any questions for you about that upcoming event. Secondly, on August 12th, we're kicking off a church-wide series called Disciple. It's going to be a study in the Gospel of Mark. One of the things that you'll notice today is that Jesus talks about being one of his disciples. And that's kind of a weird word for many of us. What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, I'm glad you asked. We've designed a whole sermon series around that very question starting August 12th. I'd encourage you to join me for that. And listen, in order to find the most value out of this study, in order to receive the most benefit, I want to strongly encourage you to study not only as you participate in Sunday mornings, but with community, with the community outside of Sunday mornings. Let me tell you something, and I think you know this to be true. Every time I read the Bible by myself, all of my ideas are smart. All of my interpretations are 100% accurate, and all of my thoughts are never, um, I, I would never call them into question. But when I study the scriptures with other people, all of a sudden, come to find out I might not be right about everything. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. But studying the scriptures for, for centuries, Christians have found great value in studying the scripture together. 
And I encourage you to be a part. It doesn't matter to me if it's coworkers, if it's uh, people in your family, if it's people in your neighborhood. If you want to be a part of one of the communities that are here at Desert Springs, visit Direct and Connect, or in the back of the seat in front of you is our ministry guide. Up at the top left, you open it up, up in the top left-hand corner, there's information on how you can connect with one of the groups here. Sometimes it's a group of four people that meet at 6 a.m. Sometimes it's a group of 12 to 15 people that meet in the house in the evenings. Whatever format, I would strongly encourage you to gear up, get ready, and study what it means to be a disciple of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark in community starting on August 12th. And we're going to have some study guides available for you to pick up next week as well. We live in the digital age. The digital age provides us with many opportunities to put into practice what it is that we believe. Today, we're going to think about the truth because we are exposed to thousands upon thousands of perspectives on the truth every day, whether it's on radio, television, internet, print, we are exposed, especially because of the digital age, to so much information and many different truths, many different perspectives on the truth that we need to understand how it is that we're to engage and live out the gospel in this age. For those of you that aren't Christians, I want to encourage you, perhaps you're here trying to f- discover what is truth. Does truth even exist? I'm glad you're here. We're going to share a little bit today about what Jesus teaches on the matter. I hope that, you'll be, uh, that you will benefit from it. But we live in a day of fake news. You guys ever heard that? And I just want to say real quick, uh, journalists are, and, and statisticians and researchers are getting lambasted in our culture. And I want to say, if you're a journalist, a statistician, a researcher who's trying to do the right thing, who's trying to discover what's true, who's doing your research well, who's for the glory of God are doing your job well, thank you so much for doing your job. We understand that you're not just in it to make a buck. And so thank you for your work. We need good journalists and good researchers and good authors But we also know that in this particular moment, we also know that there are those who will craft messages, who will craft ideas simply to make a dollar. And we're confronted with that almost on a moment-by-moment basis, especially if you carry a phone around with those push alerts from your favorite news outlet. You are getting fed information at a breakneck pace. By the way, propaganda has been around, and fake news and propaganda has been around since the beginning of time. In the garden, Satan approaches Eve and says, did God really say? That's fake news. That's propaganda. That's taking something that's true and distorting it and putting it in such a way to cause us to perhaps question or disbelieve. And perhaps uh, for me, this became so vividly clear. I was listening to uh, a radio station, and I'll play my cards. I'll show you my cards. I was listening to NPR because it makes me feel smug and self-satisfied. <laughs> and better than you, frankly. So I was listening to NPR, there it is, that's the truth. I was listening to NPR, and there were these journalists in NPR, and they were bemoaning the fact that, and I won't name the administration, but I'll bet you could guess. They were, they were bemoaning the fact that there was a particular government official who they believe had a loose affiliation with the truth. I'm not mentioning who that is. And they, these journalists, were saying, it makes our job really hard when every phrase has to be triple fact-checked. And they were talking in the, in, the, in, in, the, in the arena of hundreds of claims that they had to devote hours of research to to check the, the, the truthiness, the truthfulness or truthiness of the claims. But this is the rub. 
At the end of the conversation, this went on for about five minutes, and they were bemoaning, oh, you know, this is really hard because this person has a loose affiliation with the truth and so on and so forth. They were bemoaning the fact of how difficult it made their job to be. But at the end, one of the journalists said, but at the end of the day, who am I to decide what's true for you? Now, at that moment, that journalist completely, I believe, completely undermined her profession. Because here she is saying, we're trying to discover what's true, but at the end of the day, there's no such thing as true. There's just what's true for you. This is the spirit of the age. Some call it post-modernity, but the idea is, right now, the idea in our culture, at least in this culture, is that you define what's true for, say it with me, you. One of the local casinos is running an ad campaign right now that says, you do you. Be yourself, but implicit in that is this idea that as long as you choose it, it's true for you. But of course, if it's true for you and not true for others, it is not an anchor for us. Because truth, at the end of the day, truth is the way things really are. Truth is the way things really are. Not my perspective on the truth. The truth is the way things really are. I was reminded of this this last week. I was on family, uh, vacation with my family. People say, did you have fun on your vacation? I say, we had family fun, which is not the same as actual fun. <laughs> if you've ever had kids, you know this. Jim Gaffigan, a comedian, says, why is dad always angry on vacation? I know now why that's funny. Anyways, in the midst of all the family fun that we were having, we were out on the water at a lake, pretty big lake, and uh, I am not a great swimmer. The Campbell clan is not a seafaring people. <laughs> and uh, the wind picked up and all of our stuff, we could see over there on the shore, some of, our, some of our people were there on the shore, and the wind was kicking up and all this stuff was getting knocked over and this kind of this storm was coming through that we had been watching for the last hour. It finally comes through and the waves, pick, the waves are picking up, and the wind's blowing and all this stuff, and I think, okay, well, we gotta go help those people. So as one of my friends is kind of anchoring the boat, trying to get that all squared away, I see a couple of children in life uh, jackets swimming to shore and, and having kind of a difficult time at it, and I thought, I'll help. We're not that far from shore. I'll, I can touch the bottom here, and we were about 30 feet out. Now, my experience with bodies of water has primarily been swimming pools and the ocean. And when I say ocean, I don't mean like deep ocean, I mean like oceanside beach, where you can kind of keep walking out and everything gets progressively lower. You guys know what I'm talking about? That's my idea. Well here, this is in Lake Powell, so everything in Lake Powell is like two feet of beach and then a 4,000 foot chasm, evidently, which I didn't put together. So I think to myself, I say to myself, the truth is I can jump out of this boat without a life jacket and eventually, very quickly, I will touch the bottom. That was my perspective on the truth, but the way things really are is that there was 10,000 fathoms between me and the bottom of whatever abyss lay beneath me. And I began to struggle. And I said to my friend, who now the boat, because of the wind, is like 10,000 feet away from me, I'm like, can I get a little help? 
and they're throwing the life jacket at me and the wind is picking up and taking it this way. And I think, don't you have one of those things, you know, the little things you can throw out, like the red things that the lifeguards, he did not have one of the red things that the lifeguards had. My perspective on the truth was not the same as the way things really are. You with me? And so when we say that could be true for you, but not true for others, that's, that's your definition of the truth. You define what's true for you. You never apply to swimming or most other circumstances. Now, when it comes to spirituality, we begin to ask ourselves the questions, who am I and why am I here? Why do I exist? And we turn to religion and philosophy to answer these questions because the sciences are not equipped to answer those questions for us. The sciences are wonderful. They are meant to answer questions of how are we, but not who are we. And we turn to religion. We turn to philosophy. Some of you are here today giving religion a chance. And some of us in this particular cultural moment, we will say things like this. You know, all religions, all philosophies, all worldviews have some of the truth, but they don't have what? All of the truth. They have some of the truth, but they don't have all of the truth. You see, religion, philosophy, worldviews, it's like the blind men and the elephant, the ancient parable of the blind men and the elephant. Perhaps you've heard this before. Once upon a time, there were a bunch of blind men, and they all simultaneously were wandering through the jungle, and lo and behold, they bump in at the same time to an elephant. And they begin to communicate to one another about the nature of the elephant. One of the blind men has a hold of the trunk, and he says, aha, an elephant is long, It's like a cylinder. You can kind of move it around. It's kind of like a fire hose. And another blind man has a hold of the ear. He says, no, no, no. An elephant is like a sheet. You can wave it around. It's big. It's floppy. Another blind man says, no, no, no. He's got a hold of the trunk. And he says, no, no, no. You guys don't understand. An elephant is like a tree. It's big and stout and round. And you can barely get your arms around it. And so the parable goes, all the blind men have part of the elephant, but not what? the whole elephant. And in the same way, the parable goes, all religion, all spirituality, all worldview has part of the truth, but not the whole truth. Now, that sounds courteous, doesn't it? That sounds generous, does it not? But I want to push on this a little bit. The only way for that parable to work, there's there's a fundamental truth that undergirds that entire parable. How does that parable work? Someone is telling the story who has sight enough to see what? The whole elephant. There is someone who's telling that story saying, I know that all those blind men have part of the truth but not all the truth because I see the whole elephant. So to say, if you say all religions have some of the truth but not all of the truth, what you are saying is all the adherents of those religions are like the blind men and you are the only one with sight enough to see all the religions have part of the truth but not all of the truth. You see, what in essence, is an attempt to sound humble, is actually the most arrogant claim you could make. Namely, that you see all absolute truth. And you know comprehensively that all the religions and worldviews and philosophies have part of it, but not all of it. And we have lived this way for years as a culture. But I would just ask, If you are meant to define your own truth, and you've been living as if you can define your own truth, I want to ask you this. Are you satisfied? Are you flourishing? Are you invigorated? Are you delighted? Do you long to discover new things? Do you find joy? Or are you haunted 
by the idea that there is a truth that exists that is greater than you. If you look at the movies, the good ones, and you listen to the songs, the good ones, the artists are telling us that we are haunted as a culture. We are haunted by the idea that there is a truth that is greater than us, that a truth that exists that does not need us to define it. And here we come to the crux of it. We are desperate to know the way that things really are. And I want to give you this, that the truth of the gospel sets us free to know ourselves and to know God. The truth of the gospel sets us free to know ourselves and to know God. The truth of the gospel sets us free to know ourselves and to know, the God, uh, to know our God. The truth of the gospel sets us free to know ourselves and to know God. Here we go. This first is the story of the cosmos. Have you heard this story before? The story of the cosmos is told in the scriptures as a story in four parts. You open your Bible, if you have a print Bible, and if you don't have one and would like one, you can take one from the back. If you have a print Bible, you open up, what are you gonna find? Usually a blank page, you flip that over, then there's a table of contents, then you flip it over and you find Genesis. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the first chapter, the first words in the, book of the, the first book of the Bible is this, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The story starts like this, creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing, then there was something, and God created it all. And he created people in the image and likeness of God, the scripture says. It's what theologians would call the Imago Dei. And God created people. It's the crowning glory of his creation, made with inherent dignity, worth, and value. Three chapters later, Genesis chapter three, you find this, the fall. You have creation, part one, part two, the fall. People made in the image and likeness of God, created beings, took God off the throne of their heart and placed themselves on. We said basically to God, thanks but no thanks, I'm the center of the universe. This, of course, is the essence of sin. And because of that cosmic rebellion, that sin, that embodying of evil, God had two options. Well, he had a few options, but one of the primary options was to turn on Metallica and kill them all. Could have just started over. But in his infinite grace and mercy, he chose not to destroy everyone, but rather to redeem. And 2,000 years ago in space-time history, God, the king and creator of the universe, took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and was crucified at the hands of his own creation so that God could be just and justify sinners, so that he could put us in right relationship with him and not ignore sin. This is why the cross is so central to our understanding of the truth. And before he rose from the grave, or excuse me, before, after being crucified, he rose from the grave conquering over Satan, sin, and death. And before he ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, one day I'll return and I will restore all that is broken. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And right now, we live between the finished work of redemption and the coming restoration in which Christ will make all things whole again. This is the truth of the gospel, which sets us free. That truth, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, that truth, far from being a prison, sets us free. Many of us are walking in here today thinking that religion is a prison, and religion, apart from Christ, is absolutely a prison. But the truth of the gospel sets us free. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verses 30 through 32. We'll put it up on the screen. 
And I, this is, I, I know that many of us are readers, and if you're a reader and this is helpful to you, I would encourage you to read along if, if you're going to internalize it more. But, but if, if maybe, you, maybe that's not necessary for you, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. These are familiar words. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is to just hear the words and receive them into yourself. Don't, don't study them just yet. We're going to study them in a minute. But I want you to receive them. Okay, you with me? Can we do that together? These are the words of Jesus. And as he was saying these things, uh, many believed in him. And then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is the word of the Lord. If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Living in line with the truth is not a prison, it's freedom. He says in verse 31, you will truly be my disciples if you continue in my word. You might want to know, what's a disciple? You notice Jesus didn't say fan, follower, or believer. There are many fans of Jesus who are not his disciples. There are many people who are following Jesus that are not his disciples. There are many people who believe in Jesus who are not his disciples. As a, for instance, demons believe in Jesus, but they are not his disciples. They are not walking in his path, learning from him and being shaped by him. You want to know more about what it means to be a disciple? You're never even going to guess. On August 12th, we're going to kick off a sermon series as a church. It's called Disciple. Study through the Gospel of Mark. I encourage you to be there for that. You say, but disciple, that kind of sounds like discipline, but disciple, that's not freedom, that's restriction. Okay. Chiggity, chiggity, check. You and I may not really understand what freedom is. Because in this culture, in an individualistic, consumer-based culture, we are told that freedom is the absence of restrictions. To be truly free is to be completely, to, to find that there are no restrictions on your life. But I want to lean into that. I'm going to give you three things to consider as you think about what it means to be free, because the truth of the gospel sets us free. I was on the boat. I perceived that the truth was that the shore was right underneath my feet. The truth of the matter was what? That there was an abyss underneath me. <clears throat> I had the absence of restriction. I was not restricted by a life jacket. I was not restricted by a boat. I was not restricted by common sense. I was completely unfettered, but I was not free to go on living had it not been for the help of someone who helped me. You see, being completely free of those restrictions would have led ultimately to my death because I was not living in line with the truth. The truth was the shore's over there. My perception of the truth is the shore is just a short distance underneath my feet. And because I chose not to live in light, in light of the truth, it did not lead to my freedom. I'll give it to you another way. Eddie Van Halen. When you think about freedom, I want you to think about Eddie Van Halen. Specifically, I want, he was the lead guitar player for a band called... Um, what was the band called? It was um, Van... 
Oh, Van Halen. That's right. <coughs> okay, sorry. So Eddie Van Halen was the lead guitar player in a band called... Okay, no, I gave you the answer, so we're going to try that one more time. Eddie Van Halen was the lead guitar player in the band Van Halen. Okay, so freedom. What does Van, Eddie Van Halen have to do with freedom? Eddie Van Halen has the freedom to shred. Boy, can that guy play guitar. I mean, he can pick up any guitar and wow the socks off of all of us. Could be a classical guitar, could be an electric guitar, doesn't matter. Eddie Van Halen has the freedom to walk on this stage anytime he wants to. By the way, Eddie, this is an open invitation. <laughs> Join us any week. He can walk right up here and he has the freedom to shred. Now, I don't believe that there's anyone in this room, even those who are guitar players, who have the freedom to right now walk up on this stage and shred to the same degree that Eddie can. Why? It may be because you do not have the innate talent, but it could also be that you have chosen not to restrict yourself to the countless hours and years of practice and physical therapy for dexterity that it takes to shred like Eddie Van Halen. You see, you are not free to shred like Eddie Van Halen because you have not restricted yourself. You say, wait a minute, I thought that freedom was the absence of restrictions. Yes, certain freedoms are the absence of restrictions, but is it a deep freedom? Let's do it another way. This might hit a little closer to home. If you live with a complete absence of restrictions on your life, thinking that it's freedom, you have negated any real relationship. You, if, you if you say, I throw off all restrictions in order to be truly free, then you are not free to have an intimate relationship with anybody. With a you will not have close friendships. You will not have a lover, a deep intimate relationship with a lover. If you live without restrictions, you will not have deep relationships because every deep relationship requires restriction. In my deepest friendships, I am restricted from things like self-centeredness, betrayal, slander and gossip, because if I do those things, what happens to the relationship? In my relationship, I know not all of us are married, I know not all of us will be married, but let me just give you this, just for, my, for those of us that are married. In my relationship with my wife, if I choose to live without restrictions, <laughs> I will not go on living. If I choose, listen, if, if, you, if you choose in a, loving, in a love, deep love relationship, if you choose to live without restrictions, you, will not, you are not free to have a deep love relationship. You see, in all of life, we are constantly choosing to give up some freedoms in order to have a deeper, greater freedom. If you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, you're not 18 anymore, stop eating jack-in-the-box tacos like they're going out of style. Confession. If I choose to not restrict my freedom to eat jack-in-the-box tacos like they're going out of style, I will not have the freedom to make it to 60. We are always giving up some freedoms in order to attain a greater freedom. Freedom, true freedom, is not the absence of restrictions. The truth of the gospel sets us free to know ourselves. It sets us free to know ourselves. Uh, Charles Taylor is a, was a philosopher from Quebec, and he argued that we live in, the, in a secular age 
where everything is questioned and nothing is sacred, where everything is questioned and nothing is sacred. And this has led to much good. This has led to much discovery. But one of the negative byproducts of that idea of living in the secular age where everything is questioned is that all of us are walking around unsettled. There is no anchor. There's just constant questions. There's no building up. There's just constant tearing down. Uh, Dallas Willard, who uh, was the professor of philosophy at USC, says this. We live in a culture. Check this out. Tell Tell me if you think this is true. We live in a culture that has cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. You can be almost as stupid as a cabbage so long as you doubt. The fashion of the age has identified mental sharpness with a pose, namely a pose of questioning, not with genuine intellectual method and character. Oliver uh, O'Donovan, who's a professor at Oxford, says this. He says that we live in an age of perpetual suspicion. We're always squinting and being suspect of everything. He says this, one cannot gain a truer understanding of the world by criticism alone any more than one can make a dish of, he says mince, but I'll say a dish of hamburger with a grinder and nothing to put through it. By elevating suspicion to the dignity of a philosophical principle, it destroys trust and makes it impossible to learn. We live in an age in which everything is questioned and the one who's doing the questioning is elevated above anyone who actually believes in anything. And what these three philosophers are saying to us is this, you can't build a life around suspicion alone. Critical thought, of course, is excellent, it's good. I believe that God calls us to critically think. But being critical of things alone is like making a hamburger with a grinder and no meat. There must be a substance to it. I was at a, um, a lecture by Richard Dawkins, who's an author, prolific author, self-pronounced atheist. He, he's very upset that religion is continuing on in the world. He's very upset, especially in the West, that Christianity has been propagated for this long. And much of his writing is against Christianity. And I have a lot of respect for Richard Dawkins. I think he writes very well, very strong. But I'm amazed, frankly. I was at one of his lectures over at Gamage a few years ago, and <clears throat> there was a moment near the end where after railing against religion and undermining religion based on, he's using the scientific uh, discovery to undermine religion, saying we don't need it anymore. But near the end, the lecture became a sermon. He would never admit this. The lecture became a sermon, and then it became a worship service. Because he began to say, you see, we don't need religion anymore. We don't need anything outside of us to define us. We don't need any sort of empirical truth. We don't need any sort of God out there to forge our destiny. We create our own. And the crowd is cheering and standing up. He's almost singing as he lauds the wonder and beauty of the cosmos and the intricate nature of humanity and the wonder that there is inside of every person. And he says, and and no one defines you, you define yourself. And what struck me was that here in this room full of a bunch of 20 and 30 year olds, that sounds good. It sounds freeing. 
until 2 a.m. when you feel the existential dread of the abyss of a cosmos without a God. Wait, you mean to tell me I have to create my own meaning? My dignity, worth, and value comes from what I can do? What if I screw up? This idea, oh boy, and we tell our kids this, and let me just, I, like, ask me in 20 years for parenting advice. We'll see how my kids turn out. But listen, if I was going to fast forward in the future and give you some parenting advice, I would say this. Please stop telling your kids you can be anything you want to be. You can't. You're designed. You're created. You have certain qualities that are distinct from the qualities of others, and you can't be anything you want to be. Tim Keller, who's a, a writer and a minister in New York, who much of what this, where this sermon comes from, I've, I've learned from him. One of the things he says is this. If you tell a 150-year-old, 5'2", 20-year-old, that they can be anything they want to be, and they want to be an NFL linebacker, you're setting them up for a devastating reality. It will not lead to their flourishing. You see, we flourish when we live in light of who we are, the truth of who we are. And the truth of the gospel sets us free to know ourselves. This idea that we create our own truth and our own meaning, it is a prison. It's not freedom. I'll prove it to you. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I see what y'all are doing. We're going to talk about that next week. But for today, here are some of the things that we hold on to. When the chips are down, when push comes to shove, all of us cling to something to give our lives meaning, dignity, worth, and value. All of us. And it usually comes out like this. Something bad will happen in your life, and you will say, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, you will say, well, at least I'm, or at least I've got fill in the blank. Though this thing has hurt me, this thing has taken away from me, at least I've got, or at least I am this. Here we go. What do you fill in the blank with? Here's some options. Well, at least I'm sexually active. In the clinics that do uh, testosterone injections and plastic surgery are proof that some of us are trying to define, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not downplaying those things. Those can be good things. But if they've become ultimate things where we're just trying to prolong our dignity, worth, and value by being sexually active, there is dignity in the 70-year-old paraplegic who is not able to be sexually active. And that dignity does not come from their sexual prowess. It comes from the fact that they were created in the image and likeness of God. They did not create their own value. Well, at least I'm an influencer in my community. At least I'm financially well off. At least I'm powerful physically. At least I'm physically attractive. At least I can do 100 burpees at CrossFit. At least I have a lover. At least I'm a parent and I've got kids. At least I'm a Republican. At least I'm a Democrat. At least I'm a Libertarian. Well, at least I'm a Whig or a Tory because I'm old school. At least I'm religiously devout. At least I'm an American. At least I'm not those people. Well, at least I pursue social justice. Well, at least I stand for what's right. Well, at least I, that's a prison. If you're defined by the things that you do or the things that you have, you are chained to them. Every time one of those things is called into question, whatever you fill in the blank with, when that thing receives pressure onto it, when that thing gets called into question, 
you freak out. And so do I. Because not only is the thing at stake, but we are at stake. Because we're chained to it. If I determine my own value, my own self, if I determine myself by the things that I have or the things that I am, the the how I am, I'm chained to them. Jesus says here, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. The truth of the gospel sets us free to truly know ourselves, and this is who we are. We are people made in the image and likeness of God. Though fallen and rebellious, we, if we are in Christ, are redeemed and will one day be totally restored. That's who you are. The truth of the gospel sets us free to truly know ourselves. And it also sets us free to know God. We live in a particular cultural moment where spirituality is, it's like a cafeteria. You guys ever been to a cafeteria? Talk back to me now. You guys ever been to a cafeteria? Yeah, remember Luby's? Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, my parents would be like, we're going to Luby's, and I shuddered. I did not like Luby's, I don't know why. Was Poncho's a cafeteria? You guys remember Poncho's or his little flag? Somebody help me out. Was Poncho's a cafeteria? Can we give it up for Poncho's, please? I mean, God, I'm not a nostalgic person by any means, but I miss Poncho's, man. That place was great. Cafeteria religion. Oprah, eat, pray, love. CrossFit, to one degree or the other. Personal wellness conferences, all good things. But one of the things that might be a distortion that generally those things propagate is the idea that you and I, because we get to pick and choose our own truth, get to pick and choose our own God or ultimate reality. We'll say things like this. You know, those Christians, oh my goodness, those Christians are so regressive. They believe in a God of judgment. Can you believe it? I prefer to think of God as the elderly gentleman on the Werther's Originals commercials who would give out candy to people, little children, uh, Wilford Brimley. I prefer to think of God as. Do you know how insulting that is? Just right quick. Do you love it when people say, I prefer to think of you as? You know, I remember I was sitting across from my wife and she told me once, uh, this is a made up story by the way, I was sitting across from her and she said, you know, (laughs) she said, I love uh, country music and Broadway and Disney, and HGTV, and I grabbed her hands, and I looked deep into her eyes, and I said, I, 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 that's so regressive. You know, I prefer to think of you as uh, uh, a fan of the NFL who loves uh, Megadeth and uh, who would like for me to buy a, ni- uh, buy a 1991 uh, Ford Bronco. <laughs> yeah, I know you're telling me who you are, but you know what? I prefer to think of you as. Do you like it when people do that to you? Cafeteria spirituality says basically you get to decide who God is and what, uh, what has happened is one of the great philosophers, I think it was Descartes said, um, the scripture says that God made us uh, in his image and then mankind returned the favor. We've decided we'd make God in our image. Let me, let me put it to you this way right quick. If this story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, this true story insults you because it calls you to repentance and to belief, it calls you to humility, it calls you imperfect, it calls you rebellious, it calls you a sinner. If that story insults you, I just wanna encourage you, um, if you're not insulted or contradicted by the God that you worship, you have made that God in your own image. 
any, chickity chickity check, any real relationship with a real person involves contradiction. Think about your most deep loving relationships. Has there ever been a time where your will and their will were in conflict? Has that ever happened? You just can say amen. Some of you right now are being nudged because it's what you were talking about on the drive over here. God bless you and keep you. I, got, I can't help you today. If you have a real relationship with a real person, then you will be contradicted. If your God is a real God, your God has by definition got to contradict you. If you're never contradicted by the God that you serve, you have made God in your own image. You see, the gospel, the truth of the gospel sets us free to know ourselves and to know our God. Flannery O'Connor, she was an amazing Southern author in the early 1900s, and she says this. I love O'Connor. She says, the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. The truth, the way things really are, does not change according to our ability to stomach it. If you are a disciple of Jesus, truly a disciple of Jesus, continuing in his word, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Friends, perhaps you're here today and you're still trying to figure the whole Jesus thing out, and you're haunted by this idea that that there is a truth greater than you, a truth that is not determined by you, a truth that is defined not by you, but by some transcendent entity out there, I'm here to tell you that the truth has become flesh. The truth of the cosmos has become knowable. Jesus loves you so much. He became flesh. He became fatigable. He got tired and took naps. The God of the universe who loves you, who has created you, calls you to him. He's ready for a relationship with you. He became huggable, touchable. He became killable. The center of the truth of the cosmos is a God taking on flesh and dying for his enemies, blessing them in his last words and calling all who would hear him to turn from their sin to turn from their self-defined reality and to turn to him, the way, the truth, and the life.